Hello. Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards as well as a shout out on the show. Thanks to our latest donor, Ollie Franklin Wallace. Ollie was uh, a guest on Always Take Notes, number 15, back in the day. He's also a freelance magazine writer who is currently working on his first book. What he likes about Always Take Notes, many things, though he says he always admires Simon's shamelessly brutal questioning about money and technique. Glad you're enjoying that, Ollie. We've recently launched a new tier for our most generous supporters. If you pledge $20 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help in transcribing interviews as well. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Sophie Elmhurst, and here's a snippet. I'd sort of fallen into a bit of a rut and produced something a little bit formulaic, and it really taught me that you know, each subject, each person, anything that you write about really deserves its own kind of specific engagement, specific treatment, um, and that you don't want to kind of start colouring by numbers, I guess. A trait that a journalist should possess. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. This is a slightly different episode in that Rachel kindly agreed to interview me because I've got my book just coming out. Thank you very much, Rachel. A pleasure. I spoke to Simon about The Changing of the Guard, his new book, about his magazine journalism and about balancing time as a freelancer. Thank you very much for having me on, Rachel. It's a great episode. I hope listeners enjoy it. Welcome, Simon, to Always Take Notes on the other side of the microphone. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. It's, it's great to be here, Rachel. Thank you for having me. And maybe the humouring me would be a way to uh, <laughs> describe it as well. We'll see. We'll see. It'll be the same, uh, same treatment as everyone else. Um, could we start by talking about your early journalistic ambitions? You wrote for the student newspapers, Oxford, the Oxford Student and the Cherwell. Um, did you want to be a, a writer from, from childhood or was it definitely something that developed at university? I think it was from childhood, really. I mean, I, I just always loved, I loved to, to write. So it was a compulsion and one that really went back as long as I could and I, and I remember. Like a number of guests on the show, I wrote some pretty bad adolescent poetry, which has fortunately uh, not survived. I also, when I was at school, um, I set up a magazine, an underground magazine that was theoretically a joint effort, but I actually wrote all of it. And it was it was banned after its second issue. Um, my school was... What, what, why was it banned? Well, my school was called The Purse and the magazine was called The Purse Version. And its um, it, its tagline underneath it was that the the, the school was um, one of the few places in Cambridge to have been bombed during the Second World War, and the tagline was the best thing to hit the school since the Luftwaffe, and it was a sort of puerile mix of adolescent satire, which I entirely wrote myself, um, and yeah, it was um, it did not survive beyond a single issue, but I I did really love to write, and it was something that I um, I was obsessed by, I suppose, and then I spent. Uh, a year in the army, I will come back to that. But then I did an English degree as an undergraduate and I kind of, I wanted to be a journalist, I suppose, by that stage. And I got I got really involved in, uh, in student journalism um, uh, at Oxford and I, I rose up the ranks of the Charwell to, to the deputy editor position and then there was a sort of palace coup and I moved over to the Oxstew and, and edited that. Um, so yeah, I was kind of one of those slightly tragic people who were really into this from, from an early age, I suppose. And then when you left Oxford, you went to the Columbia Journalism School um, and you had a Fulbright scholarship for that. Did you have a full one? Because I know that it's extort- you know, the, the fees are very expensive to go over to Columbia. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So I had a year out in between. Um, and I, so after I did my finals, I went to Egypt for a year. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent at that stage. And I studied Arabic and did a bit of freelancing. But I then got a Fulbright to Columbia. And so I got $40,000 and I was the hinge year. So the year that I went, it covered all of your fees. But the year before I went, it covered all your fees and they gave you a stipend. And I and actually what has happened since then, I think, is that they have diluted those scholarships further in that they've made a decision that they want to spread their money among more people, which is a decision that I don't agree with, actually. I don't think it's the right way it should work. So for me, I had 
$1,500 from the Fulbright Commission, which paid all my fees. And then I got about another $16,000 in funding from, I, I won some awards and I, I applied for everything I could. But New York is an expensive city. And, and essentially the funding that I got meant that going to Columbia cost about what it would to go to city if I'd been in the UK, roughly. So it made, I mean, I couldn't have gone without a scholarship, but I also was, still had some support from my family to do it. And I think that's, that's sort of problematic. I think, I, think the, I think with those big transatlantic scholarships, what they should do is like, if you get one, it should be a full ride. I think that's the fair way. That it works. And what appealed to you about going to New York rather than doing the, the city version of that? I think it was speculative, actually. And it's, it's interesting to look back at it in retrospect, because I, um, I didn't get a first when I was doing my finals. I was really, um, which I thought I would, and I would, um, uh, I'd always be very good at passing exams. I'd always got the top grade in every exam and everything like that. I'd got a first in, in um, in mods and I, I, I didn't I got a sort of quite plodding 2-1 and I found that a really difficult experience at the time and I, it was something I've been really emotionally invested in and didn't get it and then I applied for that scholarship basically on a whim actually like I, a guy who'd been the year above me Peter Cardwell had had it but I applied for it without really any emotional investment at all and I only applied to Columbia so I then had this slightly I then got the scholarship and I then had this slightly weird experience where if then I didn't get into Columbia, I'd have to give the money back. So I made like slight attempts to look like I was applying to other places and then got in. But it was actually the kind of lesson of it was, I think, that the things that you really care about don't necessarily work out. And the things that sometimes really transform your life are things that just happen because it really did transform my life, that experience. When you got there, what was the format of the teaching like? Um and I think more generally, what's what are the sort of tangible differences in American approaches to journalism versus versus the British approach? It's a really good question. Um, it's I didn't go to City, right? So I don't have a, a point of comparison. Um, but the thing about Columbia is like it's in an Ivy League university. It's in the heart of New York. Um, it gives out the Pulitzers. It has a kind of institutional heft that is really substantial. Um, Although the history of the institution is bizarre in that it was set up by Joseph Pulitzer, who was a manic depressive Hungarian immigrant who falsified large parts of the Spanish-American war in order to sell newspapers. And when he'd tried initially to give his money to Columbia, they'd refused and said, you might as well have a graduate school of swimming. And he then waited for 10 years uh, until they had a new president of the university and told them if they didn't take his money, he'd give it to Harvard. So like that was in the, you know, the gestation of Columbia, but it had subsequently acquired this big institutional heft. And I mean, for me, it was completely tied up with being in the US. I'd never, I'd been to America once before when I was four or five. Um, and I remember arriving in New York and it just kind of blew me away, but it also was this exposure to American journalism. And I think, you know, it's just fundamentally the social position of, of the reporter is different in the US. And I think that's partly a function of the Constitution, of the kind of First Amendment respecting uh, protection for free speech, although those protections only really evolved in the 20th century. Um, it's also um, a function of just the, the, the profit margins for American newspapers historically were much larger. They had much larger staffs. But there's also just a kind of you know, the cynical way you think about it is that American journalists think they're priests, right? Like they really think it's a sort of really important public calling. And I remember being a, a bit cynical about that when I arrived. I thought that American newspaper prose was turgid. Um, but I actually really embraced it. And I, I think now that, you know, I, I think the fact that American journalism takes itself seriously is is wonderful. And and the the particular exposure I had was to... American magazine writing, which which I just didn't really know existed, you know, this tradition of really hyper reported stuff. But I remember, I mean, it was an extraordinary experience because I, I was 23. I was, I'd been a year, I'd done a gap year and was a year out of university. I was living in New York. Like, it, you know, it had a, you know, it feels like you're in a, in a movie set. I remember Gossip Girl was once filmed on campus and all, all teaching ground to a halt. Um, no, it didn't entirely, but, but that happened. Um, I, I think at the same time that, you know, that, the fundamental questions that are raised about journalism education, like to what extent you can teach it in a classroom stuff, that's still apparent, you know. But but the, for me, it was intrinsically tied up with this fact that it, it 
privileged me to go to the US and to see this as other tradition. In terms of that question of how you do teach journalism, I mean, how was it divided up into modules for you? Was it the 9am shorthand on a, on a Monday? No, they don't teach shorthand, So, they, which is weird because like the one sort of definable thing you can teach in journalism school, they regard as a, a weird like Anglo-Australian affectation. So they don't have that. So it, it, the course was in, I mean, I, I was there in um, 2008, 2009. So it was like the worst year in the history of the American newspaper market. Like things were falling to pieces. I remember I was in New York when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Um, I was visiting another Fulbrighter at Harvard that weekend. Um, and extraordinarily, they had a, at the Harvard Business School, they had a casino themed party. But I, the, the, at that time, the core of the Columbia syllabus was this thing called RW1, so reporting and writing one, which was the idea that you were given a sort of beat in New York um, and you would have to go out and find stories on it and things quite similar to, to how it worked at, at City. I did this, but also was... I, I kind of absconded quite a lot to do magazine assignments when I was there and I was able to, you know, it, it was, and then there were very, you know, then there were options and courses and I, I did quite a lot of photography. Actually, I did a, I did a writing about the arts course. It's funny because I feel like I've drawn an enormous amount from that experience, but it was a mix of, of being in America of the people, the cohort that I met and of the teaching. It was all tight. It was all tied up you know, for me as a one. And I do think if the US government had not been paying for it, it would have been a very different equation. You know, that is the, the truth of it. So what was your transition from uh, Columbia to working at the New York Times? And could you tell us a little bit more about what you did there, um, the sorts of piece you were writing? It was quite weird, actually. Um, in the, I applied for all these internships um, in America. And I remember going to see the careers service and they looked at my um, resume, as they referred to it, and they, they were like, what's an A-level and stuff like that and, and things. You know, it was quite a lot of cultural incomprehension. And I remember being told, oh, you know, you can apply for this summer program at the New York Times, but, but they won't take you. They'll never take a foreigner. And so I was just like, OK, I'll, I'm just going to do it anyway. And I'd sent some clips. And I had a few clips at this point from some stuff I'd written at university and, and some stuff I'd written in Egypt. And I sent that stuff in. And I got a phone call from a woman saying, look, we don't ever take foreigners, but we, will, we do like this stuff. Do you want to come in one day a week? And so I stayed, I stopped, when I was at Columbia, my second semester, I went one day a week to the Times. And I worked on this thing that's called Times Topics that was like kind of an, an attempt, I think, internally. I don't even know if it survived, but to make a sort of Wikipedia full of, from former Times articles, like a, a research, you know, a, 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 a kind of encyclopedic thing. And it, it wasn't really journalism, it was like an amalgamation thing. And then I had a, I was doing that. And then I had this girlfriend who was a British girl who I got together with, who was coming to Columbia the next year. And I wanted to be with her and I wanted to stay in New York. And I remember going to talk to them and saying like, could I, you know, just keep working here? And as far as I recall, they were just like, okay. And this, and so what they did was they put me on their summer program, which was just like incredibly competitive thing that, you know, about nine jazillion Americans applied for each place. Um, and I was then put on that. Um, and so I, I sort of slightly zigzagged my way in. But then I think what was so impressive about that was like, I was an intern, but you were paid, you know, you were paid really, pretty well. And you were expected to do really real work. So like they sent me, and I think this was possibly as a joke, they sent me to the, the cop bureau on my like first day. Which, which was like the, and I found it, you know, I found it really intimidating, you know, place to go and work. Not because people, you know, it's not a shouty or environment or anything like that, but it was the New York Times. Um, and they, yeah, they sent me to go and work at what was called the shack, which at, historically had actually been a literal shack uh, at the police headquarters where supposedly the cops and the reporters played poker together. And the rule was that if your editor called, you had to finish the hand before you took the call. I mean, none of that was happening when I was there. But but it was these like these like offices with the Times was there and AP was there and all the New York tabloids were there. And there were like extraordinary characters. There was a man who looked like Kaniki from Greece, who sort of works for one of these places. And and the way it worked was that there were people in New Jersey who had radio scanners who scanned police frequencies. And then they sent you, you subscribed to some kind of email service where they sent intercepted police messages to you about which were like people being attacked or whatever and you had to call the police it was all really quite like 
weird, but engaging. And I did that. And and then I did sort of General Metro. And I worked there, I think, for initially it was like for three months. I worked there all summer. And it was amazing. Like, I, you know, you was getting stuff in the paper. I got a front page and they give you the like the actual metal that's printed off. And then I was in this situation. It was all governed by visas, really, because after when you when you work in the US, if you're going to the US on a standard student visa, you have what's called, I don't know what the terminology, OPT or something, a period of time where you're legal to work after your course is as long as your course had been. But I was on a distinct visa because I was a Fulbright. So I still had this period, but they had backdated it to when I'd started being an intern. So I basically had about seven months of, of work legality afterwards. And I I wanted to stay working and I basically ended up I wanted to talk to them and I ended up working for this guy, Walt Bogdanich, who had won, he's still there. He's won like three Pulitzers. He's a very respected American journalist. And I kind of, and I remember saying like, can I continue to freelance for you? And they were like, yes. And I was like, can I freelance from within the building? And they were like, okay. So I basically just stayed there till, till as, as long as I could. So I was there for five months and all. And I, you know, I did a lot. I wrote, you know, dozens of stories. I had this front page and all that, but I couldn't stay. I mean, partly it was because, you know, this the paper was in a really difficult financial place at that stage. They weren't hiring people. But also, and this is the bigger thing I think about going to America, like in terms of visas, I could not stay in America. So I had to leave. And that is what was really dislocating. And I remember it being this, and I know people who've had the same experience. Like I'd spent 18 months in the US. I'd built all these contacts and connections. And I, you know, I'd done really well, actually, at, you know, in terms of where you could go from that. But I then had to leave. I had no, you know, I had no traction in the UK and things like that. And so what I ended up doing was um, a, and it was really personally dislocating because I was with this woman and stuff. And I had to, I'd, when I was in Egypt, I'd written a story for the independent about landmines in the Western desert. And they had been, um, it had got spiked, it had never run, but it entered it for an overseas press club award, uh, which it won in the US. And I got some money from that, but I also, as a reward, got a, an internship with um an overseas, an overseas internship with a news organization. So I went and did that. So after I'd left the US, um, I had this weird year basically afterwards where I um, I finished up in America and I went this to- This is around 2009. Yeah, it's 2000, this is 2000, end, yeah. this is end of 2009, it's basically 2010, yeah. So I um, I went to Istanbul for, for three months and I worked for Reuters there. And again, it was a bit difficult because I'd spent a year learning Arabic and then they sent me to a Turkish speaking country. And I had also, it was this thing that was like very prestigious to win in the US, but clearly like Reuters mothership had sort of foisted you on this bureau. I remember like I had to fight to get a chair and all sorts of like, you know, classic intern inequities when I was there. But I, I you know, I sort of, and I, you know, I really missed my girlfriend and things at the time and it was freezing and I had no money and all this kind of thing. But I remember, you know, I kind of, I, I did it and I, I got wrote stories and I got stories out there. And after that, um, it's funny how these things work out, but after that, the bureau chief was kind of like, you know, he took a bit of shine to me. And and there was a possibility of going to Afghanistan to for it for a job there, but it didn't it didn't come through. And then he said, I can't even remember the secret sentence, something like we want to send a you know a Westerner to, to Sierra Leone in Africa. And I had then um had I then did this other internship because which at Columbia I had applied. Columbia had set up this exchange with Axel Springer, which is a big German publisher. Um, and it was the first year they did it. And it was a bit of a weird marriage because Columbia is this sort of stentorian, um, you know, American institution that, that takes journalism very seriously. And Axel Springer publishes Europe's biggest tabloid, The Build, along with uh, uh, Die Welt, which is a, a newspaper and stuff. But they'd set this up. And I speak German um, because my, my parents were really into foreign languages when I was a kid, so I get sent abroad a lot. And, and I applied for this and got it. So I then had this other internship where I went and... So I went to Turkey for three months. I then went to Berlin and worked for this German paper for, for three months, which was great. Actually, it was really interesting. I mean, like, and I can speak German, but I, you know, I rapidly found like I could not write German. It's not the same thing. And, but, but I had a really interesting time. And then I went to Africa. But, but what is, in, I suppose, in, in, um, in retrospect, for that year is it sounded, you know, I spent three months in New York and then three months in Turkey and three months in Germany. It sounded really great, but it was actually incredibly stressful because I had no idea what was happening next. And I felt really dislocated. And and then the Africa thing, I remember going to see them. I'd applied for a job at the Times in London. I applied for their grad scheme and I got to the last two and was interviewed and didn't get it. And so that decision was kind of made for itself. 
And I was offered this job in Africa, in Sierra Leone. And my family has a lot of links with Africa. So my, my grandmother uh, was born in Kenya and all her sisters and so forth grew up there. That's in East Africa, not West. And I'd spent uh, three months teaching at a school there after I'd left the army and things. So I then, they offered me this job and it's a stringer job, which is so that technically the deal is you're, you're theoretically you're a contractor, not a staffer, but I never signed a contract or anything. I mean, it's all quite vague. And the deal is that you can't work for, you, at that time, you couldn't work for their immediate competition. You couldn't work for AP or AFP or Bloomberg, but you could work for other people. And you were paid a retainer, so like a bit by the month, uh, which was standard. And then you were paid wordage on top of that, depending how much you wrote. But so like the money was really bad, but it was enough to sort of cover. And I didn't negotiate on the money, that, you know, that which was which is a privileged thing. But I went and did this in Sierra Leone for two years. Um, and it was, I mean, like, Character forming is maybe how I'd sort of describe it a bit, I think. It's like, it wasn't, um, Sierra Leone had come out of war before I was there. So they had a really horrific civil war in the 1990s. Um, but that finished in 2002. So it wasn't, in a, it wasn't a conflict zone, but it was one of the least developed countries in the world, like very limited power, very limited um, things there. And the thing is, I was, I was completely on my own. So my bosses were in Dakar, in Senegal, and I saw them twice in two years. And you're just on your own and, and, you know, you had to sort everything out. But um, yeah, so I did, I did that for two years after that. So they didn't give you any help in terms of sort of relocation advice or costs. You just kind of had to work it out on your own. Yeah, you get you get nothing at all. I mean, and, and the, the dangerous thing or slightly disreputable thing about that. I think doing those things, it is in some ways the last bastion of like really romantic foreign journalism that you can do as a young person. But Part of it is it's about subcontracting risk. So if you know if you send a staffer to these places as an organisation, you have a kind of duty of care and you've got to pay transfer fees and housing and all of that. But like they don't do, there's none of that at all. So literally, like I flew to I flew to Senegal, met the bosses, and then flew to Sierra Leone. And it's quite a dramatic thing to arrive in Sierra Leone because the uh, airport is at the other side of this huge estuary from the capital, and you can either get there to the capital by a helicopter which sometimes crashes or a boat which sometimes sinks i mean it's not you know rarely once every five years but it, it's very dramatic and you arrive and then and you had to set everything up i mean it what you know and that's why i kind of think you know without being a sort of crusty old person now like the advantage of doing that is that you, you that is the that's basically you do that instead of being a young person in a newsroom being told to do like menial things you know and it was you had you know, and because your name was so um uh, the infrastructure was so bad. You had to spend, you know, just keeping stuff running. Like, you spend a lot of time looking for car parts, like a lot of time, like keeping your generator running. Like, I had the communications were so bad that I had to go to hotels to file because they had satellite internet. And then Reuters gave me a BGAN, which is a kind of satellite modem, which they were like, use for anything. And then I ran up this $2,000 bill and they were like, don't use it for anything. So it was, it was quite difficult. I mean, it was fun. You know, it's a fun, and I, what I did, I kind of made my way. So I worked for Reuters and then I was doing a lot of photography at that time as well. So I was shooting for them as well. And then I was writing, I wrote for everyone. I wrote a bit for the New York Times. I wrote a bit for the Observer, I think. Um, I wrote, but I wrote um, mostly for The Economist as my second string. So I'd had, I just emailed out of the blue, the Africa editor before I went, a guy called Oliver August, who became a real mentor to me. He was like a really good editor because he'd been a correspondent in the field. I wrote a lot for him. And then I started writing magazine pieces. And, and this had begun really in the US. I'd written, I had travel money as part of my scholarship. So I was able to cut around a bit. So I wrote a couple of, of profiles then, but I did in Sierra Leone two big profiles of former warlords. So one, which one of which I sent you, this guy Strato in Sierra Leone. I did another one in Liberia and in Senegal, I did, um, I did an election. So I was kind of finding my way with that. Um, but it was, I, I don't know, like, it, I think now, like it's, this was 10 years ago, right, that I went. And I think, you know, that, that the amount of kind of energy it took to just like get off a plane in a country that you knew no one to like find somewhere to live, to find somewhere to work, to find all of that. You know, I'm not, it's a young man's game doing that, I would say, or a young, young person's game, really. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I did. How much prep and research did you do beforehand? Had you sort of you know read poured through the history books done your done lots of reading i mean there's like the image of the sort of white 
foreign correspondent commenting on African politics is to lots of people quite problematic. How did you sort of navigate those sensitivities and I guess sort of reassure yourself and your readers that you knew what you were talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I did I did the reading before I went. I also lived there, right? So I do think there is a distinction between like parachuting in somewhere and just, you know, going and spending time there. And the um the line with this is is interesting. And I think, you know, Reuters at the time and also now has been pushing to have more local staff doing things, which I think is, is good and is commendable. I think what it's slightly delicate, but I can talk about what was slightly interesting in Sierra Leone is that before I'd got there, they'd had um a woman called Katrina Manson was there. So she then she then did the Congo job for Reuters and she went to the FT. So she was in East Africa for them. She's now in DC for them. But they'd had like on and off, and I think through the war, a local guy who must have been in his 50s or whatever. And obviously he was like, you know, understandably disenchanted with this sort of succession of like 25-year-old white people turning up on his beat. And, and you know, I tried, you know, to sort of have a chat with him. He didn't want it. But also, but also I also had to spend quite a lot of time trying to verify the sort of quite random stuff he filed to Dakar, which, you know, I remember once like driving miles out into the bush because a story had been reported that like four tons of marijuana had been found or something like that. And there was you know, slight skepticism about it. So I think, I think I suppose the point here is like, I think it's really good that local reporters are coming through, but you know, in places where there's not, particularly a country like that that's been so disrupted and, and so forth, it, it can be tricky. I also think, you know, there is a benefit actually in being an outsider in, in those environments because you are not beholden. And so like I, by the end of my time in, in Sierra Leone, my relationship with the government was really difficult. So, cause I'd written a lot about corruption. And so like they would denounce me on the radio um, in a slightly kind of bizarre and, and somewhat amusing way, but nonetheless, it was a little um, weird. And I, I, I once appeared on the front page of a newspaper with the headline, Misguided Journalist on Doomed Mission in Sierra Leone, which I, I greatly regret that I've not framed. But it was, you know, I, I could do that because I was leaving, right? And because I was sort of on my on my way out. But I also, I think basically that there should be more African voices writing. And I think African voices coming through in general is a really positive thing about about absolutely. And when I when I left, I, wrote, I I agreed that I thought these like I hadn't really been there long enough, but I thought these big kind of you know I'm good now opine upon the state of the continent thing. I I thought yeah it's is is highly questionable. And I wrote a piece just about literally what I did on a day to day basis, which was like that I spent an enormous amount of time looking. I said that life in Freetown at that time was a constant and never um, achieved search for three commodities: so for functional telecommunications, for electrical power, and for cash. Because there was no, um, you know, you couldn't pay for anything on a visa. The highest denomination note was the 10,000, which, but there were 6,600 leones to the pound. So you actually needed like a lot of like physical cash to do anything. And you just spent an enormous amount of time kind of, kind of doing this. Um, and it was a pretty, pretty enervating process to, to go through. I think what I also found, the reason I came home in some ways, is that that kind of expatriate society is quite fun, but it's also quite strange. And it is, it's, it was much more extreme in Sierra Leone, I think, than in somewhere like Ghana or Kenya or Senegal, where there's like a really established, educated, local middle class, you know, because in Sierra Leone it had been in a war and everyone who could had left, you know, that, that was not really there. But that kind of expected thing, I, I kind of felt that a lot of people were, were running away from their lives and I was probably one of them. And so I, um, I turned down two jobs in Africa when I came home. So I'd been offered this, this, I'd been offered the Congo job for Reuters and I was offered a kind of roaming West Africa stringer job for The Economist. I turned them both down and I came home and coming home was much harder than going really because, you know, I came back to London, I was 27, I'd never lived in London. Um, I stayed with a friend of my mum's for six months and you've got to kind of be a, you know, doing that sort of thing, like running around a foreign country pretending to be a journalist can be cover for not dealing with a lot of stuff in your life. What were you not dealing with in your life? Just kind of stuff with relations with my family and, and things like that, which I feel I was able to to address. But I'm also really glad that that I addressed them. And and I also I also had a had to make a decision, I think, about what kind of work I wanted to do. And that that path, if you go on it and you work abroad, particularly in, in that kind of environment, the, the obvious track would be that you would end up working as a staffer for one of the wires, so for, for Reuters or for AP, potentially being a bureau chief for them. 
And I remember I'd seen um, what that involved. And I was, it's, I remember being in, in, in Sierra Leone with the Reuters like head of Africa when there was a revolution in the Congo and he was like moving his correspondence around like pieces on a chessboard and stuff. It's really impressive, but I didn't want to do it. I wanted to write. And I suppose the other thing that was a continuous thing throughout my 20s was I kept trying to write novels unsuccessfully. So I, um, I, I first seriously tried to write a novel the year after I left university and it was like desperately, painfully autobiographical, like everyone's. And it, um, but it secured me an, an agent. <laughs> and after that, I literally spent like seven years trying to write novels. So I, um, I, when I'd lived in Egypt, I wrote this like lengthy screed, which was about, curiously, about a sort of unhappily married English woman having an affair with a very erudite Egyptian guy um, against a background of increasing political uncertainty. And then the Arab Spring happened and it went from being like eerily prophetic to just slightly wrong. So that got... Um, that got retired. And then I, I wrote a novel in, in Sierra Leone that was about fraud. I wrote a story about um, Westerners coming to try and buy gold at times that gold was very expensive and getting elaborately and extremely sophisticatedly ripped off by the Sierra Leoneans. And I wrote a novel that was based on this. And again, it was taken to market, um, but it didn't sell. And so, you know, I was kind of trying to feel my way through this way. But I sort of knew that, like, I didn't want to do that. You know, I, I wanted to, to, to write with a bit more of a capital W. Do you think novels are in your future or do you think you've sort of put those experiments to bed now? No, I really hope they are, actually. Um, and I feel I've actually, um, during during the whole um, drama with the army book, which we'll come to, but I've started another one, which I've written 40,000 words of, which is completely different. It's, it's a sort of farce, really. Um, and I wrote it almost as an antidote to this very serious situation I was in. But I, I'd really like to pick that up, partly because it, it feels... Like it's something that I'd be you know, really challenging myself doing. I also think I just I just would be I know more about how writing works now. And I thought when we had Simon Sivo uh, Modafori on the show, I'm not sure it would have gone out when we put this out, but like yes. the fact that he to be forthcoming to be forthcoming. But he talked about combining that nonfiction writing and novel writing, and actually how they kind of they complement each other. You know, so I really I really would like to pick that thread up again. Yeah. Could we talk more generally about your life as a freelancer in the UK? Um, how you make it work financially, what the makeup of your week is like, um, how you approach new publications and your tips for pitching. That's about five questions in one. But if you could just tell us a little bit about what it's like for you as a freelancer. Yeah, I could say like how it works now. And then with the caveat that like it took a long time to kind of it's quite regularized now and it's all, and it, it's all quite stress free. But the caveat that it take it took a long time to build it to that point. So what I do, I do a day a week editing for a, for a kind of newsletter, um, which pays my rent. Firstly, I mean it really, it really does almost effectively sort of cover that. Um, but it's also I like it because it's collegiate and it's with people, and it's also completely self contained. So I do a day where like I I have to think and it's hard work, but I kind of disengage mentally from from what else is going on. And then I wrote magazine pieces. So I suppose when I came back from Africa, I had this you know, vague idea that I knew that I wanted to do this kind of magazine stuff. And what I have been able to do, I'm very proud of, is to build that to a point where it's a living. So I have um, most of my work now is, is, well, it's split, but a lot of it is for, it's for American magazines that pay well. And I write these big pieces and I probably do between sort of four and seven a year, depending what else I'm doing. Um, and they are, if you keep that machine running, because it's all paid in retrospect and everything takes months, you have to, the, the thing has, has to be churning. You have to have things at different stages. But, it, you know, that, that work, those big American pieces are still paid at north of $2 a word so that, you know, they're quite, quite well remunerated. And I do that and I do my Thursday and then I do a little bit. I've done various bits of other editing work. Um, you know, I've done stuff for NGOs, I've done a bit of copywriting stuff for the UN. But, but you know, what I've kind of built now is a framework that like, it provides me, it's not, you know, it's not, I'm not making banker money, but I'm making like decent money, you know, I cover, I have my own flat. And it also feels, you know, it's relatively stress free, but it took a really long time to do that. And I didn't, you know, I had, um, when I came back from, from Africa, my parents, I had some support for my family. Um, for it for a bit because um, I was kind of fight, finding my way but I think what I didn't conceive I think it would have helped if I had conceived earlier like okay I'm going to do two days a week of sort of just money work and other stuff I mean I do all sorts of quite weird things and what I found is like 
you know, I never starved, right? It was all, you know, there was always, you, there was a safety net and things like that, but it is a stressful way to live, like to be kind of constantly hustling and constantly sort of doing that. And what I feel now, the thing that's just changed substantially in my work life now is I've just been given a contract by 1843 um, from The Economist I've done work for. And that, I mean, both in terms of time and remuneration is effectively half a salary, basically. So I kind of, what, what is pleasing now is, with that and with my day a week, like that's, that's, I'm kind of okay, like financially without anything else on top of that. And, and what I find, which is, which is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge relief off one's back and one's mind to do that. Because I think that, you know, what you find yourself doing is you find yourself running a business, right? And that's not, that's not why I wanted to do this. I think, you know, I've always been quite allergic to institutions in some ways, especially if I've bounced along this way but you you find yourself and i remember like the first time i had to you know, do a tax return and stuff like that i was just like this is not what i signed up for like you know this is i'm really bad at this stuff i find it really stressful and i find it really difficult and what i'm quite pleased with now is like you know i've kind of gripped that stuff i mean it took you know maybe 12 years or whatever to work out how to do it but i think that actually there is something about yeah, you because know, ultimately, like money is freedom, right? And this kind of thing. Like, if if you are covering your your costs and making your own way and, and stuff like that, you can do what you want. But I should I would say though that you know there were you know I don't want to kind of present myself as some kind of up by the bootstrap hero that I'm not. Certainly, when I went to Columbia, I had some help from my parents, and subsequently at, at other times, and and then particularly in Compass. But when like when my book all you know hit the buffers, and I was suddenly expecting. 25 grand that wasn't there you know I was able to be supported then but but now like it kind of works and it's quite smooth and it just reduces your you know, you know when we had Samantha on the show and he was just like you know he'd clearly just like burnt himself absolutely to the ground like by church by writing magazine articles by not doing anything else I think that you know Say, I think if you're going, to, I think if I was doing it again, like if I was coming back, you know, I was in my late twenties. I had five years of journalistic experience. I'd say, okay, what what is the first thing is like I need to build a framework that provides me enough money but gives me enough time to do my, you know, to do the work I want to do. And you know, there's quite a lot of different ways you can do that. I think what you actually need is something regular. Like you can't. The problem with doing tutoring or something like that is, you know, it's it's unpredictable and you're traveling and, and all of that. But actually editorial work or, you know, other things, there are there are things you can do to, to find your way through, which will give you the breathing space financially. And I think actually it's, you know, it's tricky because you do need a bit of like, you know, I do think if you want to plunge yourself into freelancing, it does to an extent need to be existential. Like you have to say, okay, this has to work. I need to kind of make this work. But I also... I suppose, as Natalie Haynes said, like you need, it's worth doing some, some sensible planning about it as well. Do you think that you have got the balance right now? Do you do you have weekends off? Do you, you know, how how much work do you do in an average week? Do you try and do like nine to five Monday to Friday? So I think everyone I work who I know who works freelance is really interested in like you know, how you work and like how you work efficiently because ultimately your your finite the thing you cannot scale is your time like you only have a certain amount of time so i'm i i do everything i can and i i'm quite into sort of all this like woo woo is sort of the wrong word but like you know i i i i can tell you i get up i meditate for 20 minutes i walk to the shop to expose myself to daylight so that i feel awake buy a coffee i come back you know I, I also work with a coach who i acquired by accident on this assignment it's a long story but we met through, through something i was writing about and we subsequently end up working together who's a sort of brusque scandinavian guy and i work with him on like making plans and everything i work from home now because of because of the lockdown and what i try and do is is make a plan at the beginning of the week of like what are the key things that need to you know that i'm trying to accomplish this week the other thing that I find really important for me is having a lot of irons in the fire, you know, so I have like, you know, seven, six, seven magazine assignments going at some time, but they're all at different stages of completion. And I have my day a week editing and then I have the book stuff and, and you're hedging yourself financially, but you're also hedging yourself emotionally then, you know, because if something doesn't work, then you have some protection of it. But I, yeah, I really try and take weekends off. What I'm trying to do more of is take holidays more which i haven't been very good at partly because it just it would just seem such a such a waste of money in some ways to be like you know i'm just gonna throw money on an experience that i'll have nothing away from it but i really do try to not work at weekends and i try and 
try and like work efficiently as much as much as possible. But I think it's, um, I think I was kind of quite acclimatized to that because right from the start in Africa, you were on your own. You know, there was no one telling you to get out of bed and, and everything like that. So, so that's, yeah, how it fits. Could we move on now to, um, to your book, The Changing of the Guard? Um, the original idea obviously grew out of your gap year commission in the British Army. Um, how did you go about putting a proposal together for that um, and, you know, turning that into a, into a book that you could sell? Yeah, I mean, with, with difficulty and with a lot of missteps and, and back and forth, basically. I mean, so I'd done this year in the army when I was 18, which was kind of my rebellion against my parents, actually, in, in retrospect. I didn't really understand that at the time, but I came from a, a sort of academic family in Cambridge. Um, and the thing that I could do that was completely in contrast to that was to cut my hair and join the army. And then very infuriatingly, they were very supportive. Um, but I, I had this experience and I had been abroad for, I came back from Africa at the end of 2012 and I had this idea. It was essentially 10 years since I seen the army. So I do have to write about the army. And I also, I kind of knew, I'd spent all this time failing to write novels. And, but I knew like I wanted to, to write books. And I remember just like feeling my way through it. I had this idea. I, I had this, the, I had the idea that like I had see, had this glimpse of how the army had been you know, which was a kind of, it was a fleeting experience, but it was valid. And I could go back and see it. And I worked with a proposal with this agent. And again, it's worth saying here that I'd had this agent throughout those kind of eight years after university. And I I met her because I knew her son at university. It was never a proper kind of acquisition. And I, and this is, I suppose, why I'm always grilling agents we have on the show, because I feel in that sense, like, you know, I think I was a bit naive and I don't think she was that engaged. And like, I did a lot, I, you know, I wrote all this stuff and it was all, nothing really seemed to happen. And um, so what happened was I wrote a proposal. I wrote like two pages. I sent it to Anthony Beaver. He was like, this is not a book proposal. You need to do a lot more. Thank you, Anthony. He was right. And then I worked it up and I developed it for a long time. And then, but the fundamental issue with it was, but essentially the British military runs hyper- constricted access for reporters and in general if you're going to talk to people who are in the army or in bed you have to sign a document that lets the army it's a a transaction it gives them pre-publication oversight of what you see in exchange for access ostensibly on grounds of what's called operational security which is military secrets or, or personnel security which is private details but what always happens is that that gets used as an excuse to just gut the whole thing and so i knew like i i knew i needed to go to afghanistan but I also knew if I could, if I signed this contract, the book would be gutted. And so in the end, I got the documentation lawyered. And it turned out that if I went under, under the aegis of a journalist to do a journalistic assignment, that the, the rules would apply for that piece of journalism and not for a subsequent book. And here, the fact that I had um, an existing relationship as a freelancer with The Economist was helpful in that The Economist sponsored an embed. And I went in 2014 and, and got out there and was able to, to kind of get my snippet of, of access then. And in due course, obviously, they, they were very difficult and they tried to, to gut a bit of journalism and stuff. But I did that. And I had this proposal that was developing. And then, and I was kind of feeling my way through this. I think the big lesson I would say is like, you know, you do none of this stuff alone. Like, you just have to ask people for advice and all of that. And then I then got hired by Newsweek, kind of out of the blue, because um, a woman I'd been at Columbia with, who was British, but had then worked in India for a long time, had come back and was hired by this new... Um, European edition of Newsweek, which came in with lots of funding and, and excitement. And I did a piece for them. Um, I went to Monaco and I wrote a piece about a plastic surgeon's convention in Monaco, which was kind of fascinatingly weird. And they liked it and they offered me a contract. And I took it. And so I then was hired on what seemed like this extraordinary gig of, you know, to write, I think, what was it, five, 10,000 word stories over a year or something. It seemed too good to be true. And indeed it was when the magazine went bankrupt like 15 months later. But I, that then sort of took me out of that position. And this proposal that I'd had sat on ice because I was doing these big pieces. And then we then all got fired like unceremoniously and overnight at Newsweek when the Americans pulled the funding. And I was suddenly like left, you know, with like this lease on this flat that I'd signed up and stuff to deal with. And when I'd been at the magazine, I'd met Alex Perry, who was a former log standing correspondent for Time, but he'd been a... Um, a real mentor of mine. And he, um, I said, look, I've got this book deal, but I'm not really sure what's going on with it, with this agent. And he put me in touch with his agent. And his agent, who is now my agent, 
like spun it up and in five weeks had organized a five publisher book auction and it was all incredibly exciting and it was weird because i spent year i spent this was 2015 i'd literally spent like nine eight years trying to write novels and like no, nothing had happened and you know they, they would get sent out to the ether and no response and suddenly like it seemed that everyone wanted to publish this book and it was auctioned five ways and it was incredibly exciting and then i wrote it and then yeah all the difficulties arose <laughs> So could you tell us a little bit more, obviously, about those difficulties, but I'm wondering at what point in the process the difficulties, particularly regarding copy approval, you know, set in. Am I right in thinking you'd done more than 200 interviews before before the trouble started? I did 260 interviews all in, over three years. And in parallel, I was doing my other work. So in, in, you know, in terms of the money, in terms of ATN honesty, so I didn't take the top offer for the book. Top offer was from HarperCollins for £52,000. I took a second offer for £45,000, which sounds like quite a lot of money. But as, as we've discussed in the show before, the way these things are calculated, like 15% goes to your agent. So you never see that. And uh, it's divided into three portions. So, you know, the amount you get up front, I think it was like 15 grand or something. It wasn't going to fund me through. And I was looking how I would fund myself through in parallel. I, I, look, I actually had like two ghostwriting jobs that I got and both of them fell through. And I ended up just doing my magazine stuff and, I, you know, and, and kind of scratching my way through that way. So there was this three-year period where I did it. And I had a visiting fellowship at this place in Oxford called the Changing Character War Programme. And in general, like with all the interviewing, it was fine, basically, because, you know, you're not, you're just talking to people at that stage. And, you know, I was totally open about what I was doing in the book, but because of my background, because I'd been in the army and things like that, you know, I was in some ways perceived as a sort of friendly, friendly quantity. And then I wrote the first draft and, you know, again, you're feeling your way through this really, but, you know, I wrote the first draft and I had to like boil this down into a fact-checked, nailed down thing, which meant I had to do all the process of fact-checking and rights reply. And what was difficult then was like, I knew how to do this at a magazine piece but the book as published is 35 times as long as a 5,000 word magazine piece right so the techniques just kind of didn't work um but I pushed through and kind of did I certainly could have done things differently but I you know the process worked in the end but I just caused this like bow wave of shock and anxiety throughout the army because I was having to write to people and being like you know so and so says that you made the wrong decision here so and so says this and, and all of that it caused like real and because it's a small and closed world and they all know each other it caused like you know, shock and awe, really. And this guy at Oxford, who was my supervisor, who had a very close relationship with the army, um, just just ghosted me at this point. Like he just wouldn't see me or or anything like that. And I'd paid fees to attend the program, and eventually I I kind of forced this, and I contacted other people and said, "Look, you you do need to actually see me here." And we had this sort of slightly surreal meeting in the front quarter of Pembroke College where he clearly he didn't want anything to do with the book and he told me that I should anonymize senior commanders and write more about sport in the army and stuff like that. I was just like, this is getting a bit silly at this point. I didn't have further contact with him. And then the book was, I finished it. I was utterly exhausted. Like I went off and did this big walk in Spain and it, it went through all its legal checks and everything. And it was literally like about to be signed off. And then I had to write to someone for right to reply. She then wrote to everyone she could find associated with the project, including this guy at Oxford. He then wrote to Random House saying they were going to get sued. And that then freaked the publisher. I mean, I don't know what was going on in the background, but then like the publisher went to this sort of sacred conclave and then announced to me that they were only going to publish the book if we gave copy approval to everyone mentioned in it. You know, there's a lot of people mentioned in this book, but like that everyone in the book signed off in writing about what was said about them and was happy about it, that we also gave the book to the Ministry of Defence and let them provide their amendments. And even that might not be enough. And I was just like, what, you know, I remember thinking like, what what the actual fuck is this? And we had like rounds. My first response was like, I'm going straight to the newspapers. And my agent very wisely like talked me down. And we went through, we, we went through like every, you know, reams of reporting documentation submitted, all of that kind of thing. It's clear it wouldn't move their position. They then asked to see my agent in my absence, told him they were canceling my contract, asking me to pay my advance back and asked me to pay, I think, half their legal fees, which was about 26 grand all in because I hadn't got the secondary portions. I couldn't pay this money. I didn't have it. I'd spent it. Yeah, so that was that. And I, so I then gathered a coalition of eight press freedom organizations, including Index on Censorship, Reporting Without Borders, very, led by the, the European Center for Press and Media Freedom who wrote to Random House, who wrote to the Germans who were right at the top and said, like, this is wrong, don't do this. And that didn't move their position. 
And so I then, I'd been in touch with The Guardian. I gave the material to The Guardian. The Guardian wrote about it because I knew basically that someone else had to assess the situation because obviously like I was going to say this was a total outrage, but it was my book and I was partial. And so someone else had to come in and assess it. And I think The Guardian did a pretty fair job on that. And then after that, I was, um, I saw that Scribe had, had published Billion Dollar Whale, you know, which had had a similar gestation and went to see them. And they wanted to do the book. And then there was the issue of getting the rights back because Random House refused to release the copyright to the book unless I signed a non-disclosure agreement, which I wasn't willing to do. And so then the only way to get the rights back was to buy them out. So Scribe put up 10 grand, which is as much as they could provide. And there was a question about crowdfunding the rest, but I thought the optics on that were not ideal. So what happened is all, all that money from Scribe has gone to PRH. And then theoretically, I owe them another 10 grand by September this year. But we'll see if, I, I think we'll see if that happens. I'm hopeful of not having to pay that. So it was like, um, it was an utterly savage and totally brutal experience. It took about two years. But it was, I think actually, what the book has come out now. My fear at Christmas was it was going to vanish in a COVID-shaped hole in the news cycle and no one was going to read it. And that has not been the case at all. It's had a great deal of, pub of publicity and, you know, very polarised publicity. There's been absolute raves and absolute um, kind of fury at it as well, which is a funny experience because I think a lot of people with their first books coming out, the real thing is like just scrapping to get people to notice it at all. And that has not been the issue with this. But obviously the, the response has been very, very polarised. I think I have learned an enormous amount through that experience, you know, but in terms of I think it's maybe a much it's maybe a better journalist. And it also was a sort of baptism of fire to some of the realities of how British publishing actually works, you know. But I, you know, I think what was what was in retrospect was like, I was so tired when it was done, you know, having just finished the book, you're just like, physically tired, but kind of almost like spiritually tired, like you've done just done this sort of three years of work. And, and then to be told, like, right, you're now back at the bottom of the mountain, and what are you going to do? You mentioned um, it making you a better journalist um, and you mentioned that you would have done some things differently. What have you learned and what would you have done differently? I mean, I think the question is, I think essentially um, it's about source management in some ways. I think what I've, you know, what, what I had to do and I knew with this book, a lot of what I would have to do would be to present very difficult information to people and ask for their response in order you know, for it to be fair. And I did all of that and that's, that is why the book has its rigor. I think what I've learned is you can do that. There are, you can do that in a less confrontational way in some ways. You know, you can get someone on the phone, you can talk them through it. What is difficult again is when you're having to do it in such a large number of cases and at across such scale. Uh, that that is a you know, because I had no, you know, I had no research assistance with it. So it was just me doing that. And I think I'm better now. What I think is interesting, you know, if you make clear like you're an honest broker, you will hear people out. And you'll you'll give them a fair crack of the whip as fair as you can. Actually, you can have you can discuss really vexed stuff with people, and they still will engage. But it does require a sort of level of professional gravitas and a level of kind of emotional experience that I think perhaps you can only get by by going through that. I think on a slightly so you know there's a kind of procedural piece. I think perhaps and this is this is important. Like I thought my editor was my friend basically, like he was my, you know, he's the same age as me. And he was outstandingly good at editing that book. Like he really was. And a lot of it owes to him. But at the end, like, he vanished, you know, I mean, it was all the decisions made above him, I think it was pushed down, but like, an understanding of actually what a professional relationship is, and what the boundaries need to be in that, you know. But yeah, I think I think it's kind of, um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think a lot of these experiences, like I was saying, you know, not getting a First, university, I was I found it devastating at the time, but I learned a lot about it. And this was, um, you know, this went on for, you know, the, the, the shit hit the fan with my book in January of 2019, and it came out in February of 2021, right? So it was two years of, of difficulty. But I think it's also, you do not do these things alone. I just think that's the overwhelming point. Like the people, people who, you know, supported, you know, writers, friends, um, people in, in NGOs, Actually, I just think that's such a such a kind of lesson. I know we're, we're up against time, but um, yeah, it's um, it's it's been quite the ride. But you know, I think you have to do it and, and move forward and that sort of thing. Just one final question: um, in terms of the pieces you sent over for me to look at, the eighteen forty three one on the NHS, which is fantastic, and we did not get a chance to discuss um, the New Statesman uh, profile of Valentine Strasser and obviously your book, um, it strikes me that a sort of 
theme across those ones in particular are is uh institutions structures of power and accountability um are those topics that you think you're interested in or do you think there's a sort of other overarching sort of animus to your work it's a really good question um and i know from when we've asked other writers this they find it really hard to answer i think i also like i think there is some truth to that i felt with the army i felt angry um, and that's not actually the best way to come at journalism. But I, the army that I remembered that I saw for a glimpse when I was 18 preached above every human virtue, this idea of accountability, this idea that that what it was what it was to be an army officer, that you literally held your boys, which is the phrase I would use, you know, your your men, and it was mostly men, their lives are in your hands and that it is on you. And and I remember coming back and, and starting to report this and just seeing that, like, there hadn't been any accountability that you know at the top level there just had been almost none and that I think was in a sense a bit naive of me you know that is what happens with institutions so there was definitely a sort of big accountability driver with that I found with Strasser what I found interesting with those West African warlords was like they you know they were like kings in the Shakespearean sense right like they had like personally killed people and they had you know they they you know they they held power in a way that doesn't really exist in western politics anymore um, and with, with the NHS, it was like, you know, with that piece, it was a kind of opportunist thing. I remember like the pandemic began and I wrote to my editor, I was like, look, should we do this? It was, I was like, I proposed that or I proposed like a morgue. I think those were the two, two things that I wanted. So that connected thing. But I also have like a real soft spot for like weird communities. That's the other side of my journalism. Like I've written about skiers in Scotland, you know, who are determined to go skiing, even though the, the climate's really weird. Or like when I wrote this long read about magic radio, you know, which is like my 5,000 word piece on easy listening. Like I love getting in, you know, that's not about nailing malfeasance, right? It's a completely different idea about something that's sort of weird and picaresque and fun. And I also find that fascinating. It, it, it is very hard to, to, to quantify and have an idea for another book that's that's very different but i think the thing is like i really love doing the stuff i do and i feel i, I just i just find it the, the most exciting and like the most delightful stuff and i feel so privileged to get to do it but it did take a lot of like hustle to be able to do it and to be able to make it a job you know those were the, the two things great well thank you simon for your time and for suggesting this this installment of the podcast <laughs> Um. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel, for um, for humouring me. I look forward to the um, to, to interviewing you at some stage in the future. I don't have an appetite for that, but yeah, thank you for speaking so candidly, and I will um, look forward to speaking to myself about the uh, <laughs> about the interview at a later date. Hello, it's us again. Um, obviously, an unusual episode, but Rachel, it was. Um, it's a great pleasure to be interviewed by you. And as I said, as I said afterwards, I found the, I found the process oddly cathartic. Um, I'm not sure what that says, but thank you very much for for having me on the show and um, asking all those uh, all those in depth and thoughtful questions. Maybe I should have considered a career as a therapist if you found it therapeutic. I don't know whether you were meant to have found it therapeutic. Surely it's uh, it should have been grilling and hard hitting. Well, I think it was grilling and hard hitting. I think I think cathartic, <laughs> cathartic, not. Not therapeutic. I think it was just given um, in some ways how difficult the birth of that book was to be able to sort of talk about it um, now that there's a bit of, a little bit of distance on it was was a good thing. Um, and yeah, I realise it, it's kind of weird to to look back on on one's career and try and try and pull it into some kind of shape or perspective as well. Yeah, I enjoyed learning more about your early freelancing days because I didn't know that much about it. Obviously, I've only met you in recent years so I know more about your work for 1843 and uh, other other publications but it was it was insightful to learn about that so yeah thank you for speaking candidly well you're you're welcome um my uh, my wilderness years as we could as we could call them um anyway this has been um always take notes hosted by me Simon Acom and me Rachel Lloyd our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, please do. That's also at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us, do that as well. Thanks. <laughs>